I want you to reflect on, uh, on a couple of things. Most all of us, to some degree or other, have uh, experienced some measure of being misunderstood. Uh, maybe even it's gone beyond, beyond being misunderstood. It's gone to being uh, rejected, ignored, persecuted, uh, treated in a manner that is, is, is less than you would you'd like. Some of us have had bosses that have been less than gracious. Of course, that's not here at Hope. <laughs> we have a gracious boss. <laughs> there are some people in marriages and, and a, lot of, a lot of wives who uh, undergo terrific, terrific persecution in their marriage. Some husbands even. I know I've talked to them. In the neighborhood, maybe... There's a neighbor or two or more that because you're a Christian, they shun you, mock you, talk about you behind your back, make fun of you. In all, all sorts of arenas, we certainly are going to experience rejection, but the rejection that we experience for the cause of Christ is what Peter is talking about. Suffering is inevitable. But suffering for the cause of Christ and patiently enduring it, we'll see the verse tonight, this finds favor with God. As we engage Peter, 1 Peter really is almost like the catechism for the church. We're going to talk about a lot of things over our study. And tonight we're going to just kind of look at the background. We're going to look at the, at the conditions that existed which caused Peter to write this letter. Terrific persecution. Terrific suffering. But you see, when you step up to the plate, if I can use that expression, as a Christian, when you truly begin to step out and, and not only share your faith, but live your faith, there is a cost that you will pay. Because you immediately arouse the ire of the dark side of the spiritual realm. Whenever a Christian decides to arise and to begin to be faithful and build and to be uh, submitted to the work of God in and through his or her life, the enemy rises up and says, let me oppose. And opposition is stirred up in, in, in areas and arenas and places you may never expect. And it can get hot, it can get severe. So when we read Peter, we're not just talking about suffering in general, although you can make the case, you can extend his encouragements and admonitions to, in some degree, suffering in general. But more particularly, he's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ because you are a Christian. 
And so as we engage this book, there's going to be a tremendous call for us, if you haven't already, to really step up and begin to live your faith. No longer is it going to be sufficient. You will not be able to stay in this church, I promise you. You will not be able to come to these services week in, week out, and hear me preaching out of 1 Peter without having to make a decision about your life. Okay? So I'm just letting you know ahead. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want us to read just verses 1 and 2 tonight, and then we're going to look at the, uh, the circumstances behind the letter, why he writes it. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he introduces himself. This is his salutation, his greeting. He says, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Isn't that a wonderful greeting? Can you tell I'm so excited to teach this book? So as we read those verses, and, 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 and to begin with, if, if indeed we are to understand this letter, we need to have, again, some understanding of the background of the letter. It's real critical. Let me give you a date. An infamous date in history. July the 19th, the year 64 A.D. That was the date that Rome burned while Nero fiddled. Certainly you've heard that expression. Rome was a, a very compact city at this particular point in time. And it was composed of narrow, narrow streets. Very, very, very crowded city. And uh, the population was very, very dense. And in these narrow streets on both sides uh, were uh, high wooden tenements. And Nero, the people believed, and historians will attest to this, Nero caused a fire to start in Rome. And that fire, once it hit those tenements, those high wooden tenements along those narrow streets, it consumed literally the entire city. The, higher, the entire city went up in flames in just a matter of a couple of days. There were three days roughly of fire, three days and nights. And there were repeated attempts to stop the fire, to choke it out. But in spite of those attempts, in spite of the, the efforts to stamp out the fire, uh, historians tell us 
that uh, most of the homes of most of the people were consumed in Rome. And again, the Roman people believed that their emperor Nero was behind it all. Uh, He was, by all definitions, and they all knew it, some kind of maniac. He had set the city on fire. He had had it done. He was basically responsible. And the reason he did it, they believed, was because he had this incredible lust for building. And he, he thought the greatest goal and challenge of his life was to build, to build, to build a city. And in order to build Rome, he had to burn it down so he could build it again. Wacko. That was his motivation. He found a front row seat. The the Roman historian Tacitus says that he found a front row seat in the Tower of Messinus, watching the city go up in flames, consuming Rome. And Tacitus tells us that, that Nero was rather charmed by the flames, in fact, considered them quite lovely. He was a maniac. And again, people who tried to put out the flames were hindered. And where the flames were stopped, new fires were purposely started. He Nero had people go out and, and, and start those fires up again. You can imagine the people of Rome were totally devastated. Absolutely devastated. Their culture, in a sense, went down with the city as it burned to the ground. Their entire culture. And their culture, remember, was wrapped up in all their gods and all their temples and all the, the worship that they uh, were invested in. Historians tell us that the Temple of Luna, the Ara Maxima, that's the great altar that they worshipped at, the Temple of Jupiter, the Shrine of Vesta, even all of the people's household gods were totally destroyed. Everything was lost. So it was not only a social loss, it was not only an economic loss, but it was a tremendous moral loss in terms of people, their morale was gone. Their religious system had been destroyed because their religious system just consisted in those shrines and those temples. You see, if this building burned down, we wouldn't be lost, would we? Because we are the temple of God. Do you see? A tremendous difference between pagan religions and the church of Jesus Christ. So to, to realize that their own gods had been unable to deal with this terrible tragedy, and in most cases their own gods were victims of it, was devastating to them. They were powerless. They were hopeless. They were a desperate people. Homeless, certainly. Not only had they lost their homes, but... Certainly, friends and loved ones were also uh, killed in those fires. They were truly without hope. And so you can understand the resentment and the bitterness of these people. You can understand that probably it it ran deep and it was indeed deadly. They wanted someone to pay. Can you relate to that? Can you understand that? When they knew that, that that the emperor deliberately set this fire, destroyed everything, And so Nero realized that he had to find a scapegoat. He had to divert their hostility, the citizens of Rome. And who do you think he chose? 
Yeah. He chose a group known as Christians. And there are a number of reasons why Christians made such a, a wonderful choice, if you will. And Nero wasted no time spreading rumors and spreading the word as fast as he could throughout Rome that the Christians were the ones who set the fires. It wasn't really him. It was these Christians. And frankly, his choice was a rather ingenious one when you understand the background. You see, Christians were already despised. They were already hated people. And for a number of reasons. They, they were suspicious. They were slandered to varying degrees. A number of them because, well, one reason was because Christians were associated with Jews in the minds of the Roman, in the Roman government. Christianity was looked at as a sect of Judaism. And in Rome and in the Roman Empire, there was a virulent anti-Semitism that pervaded uh, the city. And so now you understand that here are these Christians, they're associated with the Jews, the Jews are already hated, so these people are going to have that with them. They're going to be hated also. Well, secondly, Christians were seen as those who would not fully cooperate with emperor worship. Now, that would, that would upset the local officials and upset Nero, certainly. And they rejected all the other gods, all the other pagan gods that the Romans would worship. And they were hated for that reason as well. So there's growing distance just in the communities, in the city itself, cultural, spiritual issues. But beyond that, when they conducted the Lord's Supper, when they had their love feasts and their fellowships and they had the Lord's Supper, pagans were excluded. You couldn't come in. You couldn't participate if you were not a true believer. And since the pagans were not part of it, when the pagans heard rumors of what went on in these love feasts and these, when the Lord's table was conducted, they heard things like eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. So now rumors of cannibalism are being perpetuated throughout Rome. But it didn't stop there because there was such a mystery to these pagan people because they were so given to rumor mongering. They carried the rumors even to the point of saying that when they got, these, when they got together for these love feasts, they ate only Gentiles and babies, the Christians. Now, can you see how, how, how despised the, the Christian community would be in the city of Rome? But that doesn't stop there. Not only were the cannibals eating and drinking one another and Gentiles and babies, there was the Christian practice in these love feasts and when the Lord's table was celebrated, there was a Christian practice of the, uh, the, 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 the kiss of love. Paul writes about uh, greet one another with a holy kiss, doesn't he? Almost all of us in Romans and Corinthians and a number of places, he talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Paul, Peter, in, in chapter 5 of his epistle, talks about that very same thing. He talks about the kiss of love. And so Christians would commonly greet each other in their love feasts 
with this sign of affection. It, was, it wasn't a, a, a licentious thing. It wasn't a, a lustful thing. It was a genuine sign of affection. And so the pagans seized upon this, and they spread rumors that these Christians were having unbridled orgies of sex and vice. And indeed that men were kissing men and that they were having homosexual orgies. And again, another factor to um, create even more and more suspicion uh, towards the Christian community in Rome. But it didn't stop there. Uh, Christians had become even more unpopular because many wives of prominent Roman citizens embraced Christ. Now what you need to know is that under Roman law, the father, the head of the house, had absolute authority over his wife and his children. He could do anything he wanted to them. He could kill them if he wanted and he would not suffer uh, under Roman law. He had absolute authority. And so you've got, you've got women now of prominent Romans and Roman, some Roman officials receiving Christ as their Savior. And for a woman to act independently now of her husband. See, this was, this was unheard of. For a woman to act independently of her husband in that environment... Uh, was an effrontery that knew no equal. You can understand the rancor of these husbands and the rancor of the community against this Christian community for now apparently uh, creating wives who are insubordinate to their husbands. So wives who uh, were perceived as being non-submissive and insubordinate. You had children who, having come to Christ, now were breaking the traditions of the families. They were believers now. And so Christianity was seen as a movement which, in fact, split families. Brought great conflict in their culture. Again, uh, something which caused great, great problems for the Christian community. And Christians were, and lastly, this is, this is fascinating, because Christians were always talking and preaching about a day when the world would dissolve in flames. <laughs> they were noted for that. They were talking about the end of the world. And so, from that perspective, uh, you see, it was very fitting and very easy to blame them for the fire of Rome. So Nero picked that group. Did he pick the right group? He couldn't have asked for a better group, could he? To blame for that fire. Many, many reasons to blame Christians. And remember, these people were already suspect. These people were already hated. But now, wholesale persecution begins. Because of this fire. Remember, the Roman citizens are full of deep resentment and deep hostility, and it's going to be vented. And Nero manages to shift the focus from himself onto these Christians, and tremendous persecution begins. Tacitus, the Roman historian again, reported that Nero invented some horrible, horrible ways to persecute Christians. 
He would roll them. He reserved literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians, and he would roll them in pitch, cover their bodies with pitch. And he would burn them alive as torches to light his gardens and to delight the bloodlust of his guests. Horrible, horrible persecution. It didn't stop there. He sowed, had, had other Christians, uh, had animal skins sewn on them. And then they were put in arenas, and his hunting dogs were unleashed on these people who were wrapped in these animal skins, and they were torn to shreds for sport, for just to his delight. Many were crucified. So many perished in this delirium, if you will, of savagery because of what Nero had done. Lynching. Lynchings without a trial. See, if you're a Roman citizen, due process was accorded to you, but there was no due process. Didn't matter. If you're a Christian, lynchings without a trial became common practice. And within a very, very few months, many, many Christians were not only imprisoned, but they were tortured on the rack. They were seared. They were broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, and hanged. For Christ's sake. And that persecution, which was generated originally in Rome began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And as it spread, it touched places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The very object of Peter's letter, the very places where that letter would be directed. And as it spread into those places, it began to affect Christians who were there whom Peter calls and describes as strangers in the world. They're aliens. They're sojourners. We can't know precisely when, but sometime after this began, Peter, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter. We don't know the exact date of it. But it is a letter written to believers who are strangers in a hostile culture. And it is full of encouragement, full of strength. It's full of hope. <coughs> Beloved, you and I, if you haven't already, you will face persecution. And I believe it's going to be heating up. Amen. I think God's design is that we study this book together in anticipation of difficult times. It's written in a time when Christians were forced to suffer severe persecution and even with the loss of their lives. The campaign of slander and suffering for the love of Christ was moving powerfully. It was, it was, it was beyond anybody's power to control. I just want you to notice some verses and, and, and we see how many references there are in chapter 1, verse 6. He talks about 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He doesn't specify the trials, but he says suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But in the midst of that, we, we greatly rejoice. Because there's a hope. In chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, turn there with me. This is, a, this is a rich passage. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. You see, just like these people. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? His Father in heaven. You see, Peter is saying, he says, now you're suffering. Christ suffered. He set an example for you how to suffer. Go back up to verse 20. Verse 20 says, but how, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You see, when you're suffering for doing what's right and you patiently endure it, in effect, this finds favor with God. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. He says here, even with, the, even with the threat of suffering, let the way you live support your testimony. He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what? Gentleness, Gentleness and with respect. See, it's a, it's a whole different kind of life, isn't it? A whole different kind of, of living. This is, a, this is the response of a Christian, not the reaction of a Christian. The reaction is a thoughtless thing. Responding is thoughtful. It's considered. Turn to chapter 4, verses 12-13. Again, another testimony and another encouragement. He says, Dear friends, uh, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Oh, isn't that a beautiful testimony? Look up to verse 19. He says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good, even in the midst of your suffering. Even if you're suffering for doing what's right, you don't quit. You don't give up. He says, continue to do good. Commend yourself to God. Trust God. Amen. Oh, that's a rich book. Chapter 5, verse 10. Great verse. 
He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, it's not going to be interminable, after you've suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Isn't that glorious? You see, now it's, it's obvious from these passages. I would think it's obvious from these passages that these people were in a time of suffering. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, because Peter refers over and over and over to the suffering, the trials that they're having to endure. And by the way, that time of suffering would eventually overtake Peter himself. He and his wife, the tradition has it that he and his wife were martyred together. Peter was crucified upside down. Many of you know that. The emphasis of this epistle, the emphasis of this letter, then is to teach believers how to live hopefully how to live in the midst of hostility. When the neighbors don't like you, when your husband is giving you a hard time, wife, when the boss is unreasonable, or the teacher, students, the teacher doesn't like me teacher hates me. (laughs) Whatever the situation. How do you live in that situation? How do you live? How should you live in the midst of that kind of hostility, beloved, without losing heart, without wavering in your faith, without becoming embittered? Because those are all natural human tendencies, aren't they? Because when there's opposition against our life, and you say, well, I was only doing what I was supposed to do, and you did, and you, they treated me bad. And... Poor baby. <laughs> you see, Peter's going to grow us up. Aren't you excited? Yes. Peter's going to grow us up. He's going to challenge us now to embrace rubber meets the road Christianity with all that attends to it. He wants us to realize where our hope really lies. In whom our hope resides. He wants wants us to realize just exactly who our Savior is. The government isn't our Savior. Other people aren't our Savior. There's only one person who's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Be with us to the end of the age. No matter what we go through. He challenges the readers of this letter and by extension all Christians who would ever read that letter, who would ever suffer for Christ's sake. He challenges them to look forward. To look forward. To look up. Jesus is coming again. Our hope is in Him. And when He comes, all suffering will cease. But as we wait, as we wait, 
we are to occupy. We are to have a vital testimony that's backed up with lives that demonstrate the truth of the risen Lord. Would you agree? Look again, back at chapter 1, verse 7. We see the, these, these verses that speak of this great hope. In, in verse 7, he talks about the glory and the honor when Jesus is revealed. When Jesus, you may not be getting glory and honor now, but when Jesus is revealed, as you stand firm, the second coming, at the second coming. Can you defer glory and honor until then? Yeah, I think so. Verse 9. He speaks of the ultimate outcome. The salvation of your souls. That final salvation when we finally see Him. That's what we're looking for. That's what our goal is. Verse 13. He talks about the revealing of Jesus Christ. Again, another allusion to a meaning, the the second coming. People are to look up. Jesus. My focus is on Jesus. Jesus is coming again. He's going to set me free. He's going to deliver me. Chapter 2, verse 12. Again, he talks in that verse about the the day of visitation. Again, that's the second coming of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. Turn there. Talks about the revelation of His glory. Again, another reference to the second coming. Chapter 5, verse 1. Speaks again about the glory that is to be revealed. You see, He's always always telling these people, look up. Look forward. Look forward. Brother, our reward and our hope is not in this life. And if you're looking for it in this life, you're going to be really disappointed. You're going to be really bummed. Because it ain't coming here. We pray for our sister Anne, and we ask God mercifully to deliver her from this cancer, but she's got, even if he doesn't, she's got a much greater hope awaiting her at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I selfishly desire that you remain. (laughs) Chapter 5, verse 4. Look at this verse. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Oh, you love that verse. So we have then... Not only indications of suffering, we have indications that those who suffer are to keep their hearts and their minds set on Jesus Christ, and more particularly set on His return. He's our hope. He's our hope. You say, what if He doesn't return in my lifetime? You'll go to be with Him. I can hardly wait. Beloved, no matter what comes in this life, We have that great promise. We have that great hope. So we're going to be studying a letter 
that was written to believers in persecution, telling them how to have hope in the midst of all of that suffering, in the midst of all of that persecution, and how to keep their focus on Jesus, who was returning. And his return would come, with his return would come the end of their suffering, the end of their persecution. Come, Lord. You can understand how the church say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And exhorts them again to live their lives in a manner worthy of... Endure. Live righteously. Do good. No matter what. Even to those who persecute you. Even to those who mistreat you. Even to those who lie about you. Gossip about you. Ooh! Now, in the context of this letter, as we study, there's lots of issues and lots of things we're going to learn about. Would you like to know what some of them are? We're going to learn about the foreknowledge of God. We're going to learn about this thing called election. Peter says, to the elect. We're going to learn more about the significance of the blood of Jesus. We're going to talk about our eternal inheritance. We're going to study what's the proof of true faith. We're going to learn about salvation again and again and again. We're going to study the second coming of Christ. We're going to talk about what it means to be holy we're going to look at the, at the new birth, the second birth. We're going to study the milk of the Word, and we're going to see how it makes us grow. Talk about spiritual growth. We'll talk about what it means to be a holy priesthood. We'll talk about excellent behavior. What our responsibility is to the government. Marriage. How it is to suffer for righteousness' sake. Baptism. Humility. How God wants all your anxiety and cares cast on Him. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the perfecting work God is doing in you through your struggles, through your suffering, through your trials. And beloved, that's just a little bit of what we're going to talk about. It's going to be exciting, isn't it? Don't you just want to go verse by verse? Word by word? Parse this book? Squeeze out of it every last ounce of rich, joyful wisdom and knowledge? Well, we will. Next time, next time, we're going to meet Peter. We're going to meet Peter. Delightful man. So many of us can relate to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, for, thank you for caring for your church as you do. Thank you for writing to your church, Lord, through your servant Peter, 
that we might know indeed how to respond to trials and suffering and persecution, uh, Lord, even especially for when we suffer for your sake. I pray that as we work our way through this book, that we would be each one more and more emboldened in our faith, excited, anticipating not only the, the glory of seeing people come to know you, but Lord, even the, the, the persecution that's going to come our way. But we not be intimidated or afraid of it. That we only grow bolder and bolder because your spirit will influence us through this book. Lord, I pray that, that you, you would bring renewal into people's lives, revival into this community, cause this congregation again to come into a new season of a rich, rich hunger to see your kingdom come more fully. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. You know, there may be some of you tonight. You're not a Christian. Or maybe you're a borderline Christian. Maybe you're someone who's kind of been playing at it. And maybe some of the things I've said tonight have kind of struck a little terror in your heart. Or maybe just a responsive chord. Maybe for the very first time you're beginning to see, I want my life to count for something real and something substantial. You can make a decision tonight. If you don't know Christ, you can make a decision to become a Christian. You say, well, Pastor, how do I do that? Real simple. You first acknowledge that you're a sinner. Even just a cursory view of your life would convince you that you're a sinner. You've broken God's laws, every single one of them. If not outwardly, you've certainly broke them in your heart. Jesus said it's not enough to commit adultery, but if you've looked on a woman or, or a man to lust after them in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you've hated somebody, you've murdered them. That's how God sees it. You can't take refuge in some external form of righteousness. You can't just say, I'm a good person. You have to be willing to say, I am a sinner. God, I've broken your laws. But as you do so, there's good news. God is, is ready and willing to forgive you of all your sins. You see, because that's why Jesus died. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came down here to show us, to teach us what God was like. God took on human flesh, lived amongst us. But he didn't just come here to teach us. He didn't just come here to do miracles. He came here ultimately to die for you and I. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a promise. What a hope. God is not willing that any should perish. He's not sending people to hell. He's trying to save them from hell. Man by nature is rebellious. And if the truth be known, if you look in your own heart, 
you'll say, yes, I am rebellious. I'm stiff-necked. I dig my heels in. I resist. I want what I want when I want it. That's the essence of sin. Selfishness. So God says, if you're willing to acknowledge that, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to say, you know, I don't want that anymore. God, I want a new life. I want to be cleansed of all my sin. I want you to wash me clean of all the guilt. I want a second chance and a new start. God will do that because he wants to. That's what he's all about. He's a God of healing and forgiveness and mercy. But if you reject him, he's also a God of judgment. And he'll allow you to continue on your way to eternal death in hell forever and ever and ever. There's no guarantees. You have no guarantees that you'll live through the night. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not here by accident. You're here by design. God's design. Today is the day of salvation. And there may be somebody who's ready to make a decision for Christ. Or maybe somebody, you've been lukewarm and you called yourself a Christian, but you've not really lived it. But you're ready to make that decision. Or there may be somebody who's ready to, to reaffirm the fact that they're a Christian. They want to just live at a, at, a, at a deeper, richer level with Christ. God's speaking to your heart now. I want to pray with you. I want to lead you in a prayer. A prayer of commitment. But I don't want to pray by myself. I do want to know if there's somebody that wants to pray. And if anything that you've heard has struck a responsive chord in your heart, and there's something in you that says, yes, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be strengthened. I want a more powerful Christian life. Pastor, I want you to pray with me. If that describes you, then I'm going to ask you to signal me while everyone else's head's bowed. Just signal me. And you do that just by lifting your hand. And when I see your hand, I'll acknowledge that hand. And then we'll pray. Okay, I see your hand. I see these hands over here. Back there. Back there, okay. Way in the back, I see those hands back there. Okay. Along this aisle, down here, okay. Up here, I see that hand over there. Back over there. Anybody else? Just lift your hand. Okay, down here in front, I see these hands, okay. Over there on the side, I see your hand, okay. I see your hand too, right down here in the aisle. Anybody else? Okay, I see your hand. God bless you. All right. Now, if you've raised your hand, if you're receiving Christ for the very first time, or if you're somebody who's been kind of really lukewarm and you're making a decision for Jesus, really, then I want you to stand up right now because I'm going to ask my ushers to come and give you a little envelope that's got something in it for you. So you just stand up. If you've made a decision for Christ for the first time or you've been lukewarm in your faith and you're ready to get on with Jesus, you just stand right now. Now, anyone else who wants to pray, I want you to stand too now, okay? 
you stand now and we're going to pray. Make this your prayer. I'll pray it out loud. You hitchhike along with me, but you make it your prayer. The Bible says God looks on your heart. God, forgive me. I confess to you that I am a sinner. I confess to you that I have been lukewarm. I've been double-minded. I've loved the world more than you. I've loved my flesh and the satiation of my flesh more than you. Forgive me. I want to be worthy of you. I want my life and how I live it to be worthy of you. Come and live in me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Wash me clean of all my sin. Empower my life that I can serve you. Change me now. Change me now, God. Make me your servant. I make myself available. The only way I know how. I'm standing. I'm opening my life. I'm depending on you. Strengthen me for your great kingdom and your great glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What are we going to sing? Spirit right. Let's stand and let's sing together and worship our God. I'd be open to learning how to forgive. Oh, I know how to forgive. We'll do more of it. <laughs> Is there somebody in your life you're holding a grudge against? Somebody in your life you have a hard time facing? You'd, you'd rather avoid not talk to because there's conflict between you. Are you open to learning how to forgive? How to repent? And how to submit? Because in community, all those things are essential. All those things are essential. Beloved, if you're not prepared to learn the lessons and the disciplines of community, you're not prepared for discipleship. Let me say that again. If you're not prepared to learn the lessons and the disciplines of community, you're not prepared for discipleship. Community is essential to being a disciple of Jesus. There's no Lone Ranger Christians, no one independent. You, you must submit You must give your life to the community. And because only then does the world know that we are truly his disciples. When they look upon us and they see the harmony, they see the love, they see the strength, they see the encouragement, they see the, the, the togetherness of the church, they say those people are different. And it's a good different. 
and we become much more attractive rather than looking, having the world look at us and, see that, and, and say that we're irrelevant, we make no difference, and we're just bicker amongst ourselves. Am I making sense? So, bottom line, without community, you cannot be a complete disciple. Again, you'd be stunted in your growth without community. That brings me to the fifth of my concerns. And this is logical. So I've discovered that I'm not going to be alone. What's the first, one? What's the first concern? Why me? What's the second one? Okay, what's the third one? What's going to happen? What's the fourth one? Okay, here comes the fifth one. And this is something, this is a place where we all live. What if I fail? Will I be rejected? How many of you have no problem with failing? <laughs> all of us do, right? How many, how many, truly, truly, if you would be willing to admit, you're, you're afraid to fail for fear of what other people think and or say about you? How you'll look? Sure. I mean, I deal with it. I deal with it big time. I don't want to fail. And because I, I don't want people to reject me. I don't want to have a sense that God somehow discounts me or rejects me. Do you think the disciples fell short of reasonable expectations? Big time, all over the place, man. You look, just read the Gospels. These guys were, these guys, you just think, get it right, guys. <laughs> and then you just, but then you just look back on your own life, you know, you go, duh. <laughs> you think that these guys who are being groomed to be the apostles, but failure was all over them. Failure was all over them. And if Jesus ever grew discouraged over the twelve, we don't hear about it. You don't hear about discouragement. Jesus does never express that he's discouraged with them. Certainly there were occasions when he was angry with them, but he was not impatient with them. There were times where he warned them sternly, but he never threatened them. You soon begin to realize that Jesus knows our hearts better than we know our own, doesn't he? He knows where we live. He knows what our fears are. He recognized what most of us do not very often recognize, that the way to Christian maturity is paved with a thousand errors. It's paved with failure. We think we have to be perfect. We mind all our P's and Q's. We're working so hard not to mess up. Failure is inevitable. Errors are inevitable. Now, that's not a license to sin. That's not a license to do stupid things. But we're going to do stupid things because we're stupid. <laughs> Is that fair to say? <laughs> Years ago, when I took up skiing, I'll never forget this, I was falling all the way down this hill, and this little kid came skiing up next to me. <laughs> You know, snow in my face. He says, you okay? I'm laying on the snow. He says, you okay? I said, I think so. I said, I'm going to get the hang of this. He said, now listen, remember one thing. Little guy. He says, if you ain't falling, you ain't learning. And then with that, he just took off right down the hill. 
That always stuck with me. Ask yourself these questions. Here again, four more questions for you, okay? Aren't you excited about these questions? These are good questions. First question. Am I prepared to be stretched to the point of inadequacy? Oh, man, I, I don't want to even get close to my inadequacies. Right? I'm going to operate within my comfort zone, right? I want to keep looking good. No! If you're going to grow, if you're truly going to be matured as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be prepared to be stretched to your point of inadequacy when you are living in inadequacy. I love it when someone comes to me and says, I feel so inadequate. I say, good, stay there. If you ever come to me and say, you feel adequate, we got a problem. Because when you're inadequate, that's when you're on your knees. That's you going, oh, God, I need you. So am I prepared? Am I prepared to be stretched to the point of inadequacy? Second question, am I prepared to play with pain? That's not a favorite thing, is it? But if you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, you must be prepared to have pain as a playmate, a constant companion. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. Oh, don't tell me that, please. Third question. Am I prepared to seem the fool? <laughs> oh, man. Assaults my sense of whatever. <laughs> Am I prepared to seem the fool? People are going to say, you, look, what, why do you, do you believe that? Why are you doing that? You know how foolish you look? Don't remind me. <laughs> Fourth question. Am I prepared to get in over my head? Anybody here deal with control issues? You know, you want to control everything, have everything under control? <laughs> yeah. If you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, you've got to be prepared to get in over your head. It's beyond your ability to control. Beloved, these things are all, I promise you for sure, they are all likely in your life, if you're a disciple, called to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to mature, these things all mean defeat, sure defeat, sure failure. Just develop a taste for it. Trust me. But from such experiences come kingdom champions. Come people who are richer, people who are deeper, people who are stronger, people who are wiser, because they've learned. They've learned. And some of those lessons they've had to learn over and over and over. And you sit with them and they say, how many times before I learn? I don't know, but let's keep on. Amen? Amen. All right. So, bottom line, without the humility, without the what? Humility. That comes through failures and errors... Without the humility that comes through failures and errors, you cannot be 
a true disciple of Jesus. Remember back in that passage in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes himself humble in heart. If we're to be like him, we are to be what? Humble in heart. Not prideful. Humble in heart. And all of these things, in over our head, beyond our ability to handle, all these things are designed to pummel our ego, pummel our ego, pummel our ego, strip our ego, so that we are gen genuinely humble people. Last, this is the sixth question. All of this, I'm called to be all this, I'm called to do all this, how can I possibly do it? It's beyond me, isn't it? Well, that's the question. How can I be and how can I do all the things that Jesus has called me to be and to do? You know, of all the things that Jesus did, this seems the most incredible, that he took a ragtag group of guys who showed relatively little promise and he delegated to them the mission of world evangelism, to take the gospel to the world. That's incredible. You would, you'd look at those 12 guys, you say, it's never going to happen. This is never going to happen. We already read the memorandum from the Jerusalem people who told Jesus they wasn't going to do it. They needed to find some other guys. Most of the time, when you read through the gospels and you watch the disciples when they're with Jesus, they feel pretty secure. Would you? I mean, if Jesus is right there. Pretty secure, pretty empowered. Everything's under control. Jesus is here, right? There are a couple of occasions, however, I want to call your attention to, where Jesus is there, but they have some questions. Do you remember the time when Jesus told his disciples to get in the boat, they're going to go to the other side? Now, in Jesus' mind, when he says, we're going to the other side, do you, do you, do you think that he expected they were going to get to the other side of the, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, he fully expected that. So Jesus is not anxious, he's not worried, we're getting over there. Do you think that he expected his disciples to be able to handle the storm that was going to arise? Did Jesus know there was going to be a storm? Sure. Absolutely. Do you think he expected that they should be able to handle the storm? Absolutely. So what does he do? Takes a nap. It's all under control. We're getting to the other side. My guys can handle it. I'm going to take a nap. Sure enough, the storm arises on the sea. They flip out. You don't read in the account Peter saying, Steady men, Jesus says we're getting to the other side, and we are going to the other side. Hallelujah. Let him sleep. Don't wake him. No, what do they do? Man, the storm is raging. The boat's taking on water. They flip out. They go, Jesus, wake up. Do something. <laughs> Real secure, huh? There was another occasion. Jesus is up on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. I think it's Matthew chapter 17. He's up there with you know, the, the, the end guys, Peter, James, and John, right? And the other guys are down below. They're, they're supposed to be ministering, and, and you've got these other guys hanging out, and they're, they're, they have a problem. Who remembers what the problem is? There's a demon-possessed kid who's being thrashed by this demon, right? And they can't get this demon out of this kid. So Jesus comes down from the mountain with the other three guys, and these guys are wringing their hands, oh, oh we couldn't do it. And they turn to Jesus, and they say... Do something. 
So you see their inadequacy. You see where they're saying, Jesus, you do something, you do something, you do something. It's not very long before they reach the end of their, their journey with Jesus' disciples, and then Jesus turns to them and says, now you do something. What's he calling them to do? To go into all the world. But he says, before you do, I want you to wait. I want you to wait in Jerusalem. What are they to wait for? For the Holy Spirit to come upon them. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power to be my witnesses. You will have power. Beloved, the challenge to go do something that he lays out to them, it comes with the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit in Jesus who stilled the storm, the same Spirit who cast out the demon, the same Spirit who changed their lives would empower them to go preach to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, would empower them to heal the sick and raise the dead, would empower them indeed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Glory. Glory. And would-be disciples today need to be reminded. You and I need to be reminded. Our talent, our education, our charisma, our backgrounds, while they may be helpful, they may be nice things to possess, they are absolutely, absolutely useless unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything that's going to have eternal significance. You can be the smartest person in the world, but be blind. You've got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do I get that? You wait. That's key. You just go back to the formula. Just wait. And in the waiting, there has to be an increased anticipation. Lord, I need your power. I need your power. Fill me with your power and your spirit. Just to live life. Just to get out the door today. To be your witness. Fill me with your spirit. So, beloved, without the power and without the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our life, you cannot be a productive, complete, real disciple of Jesus. Can't be. Absolutely impossible. You've got to have the Holy Spirit moving, empowering you to follow Him, let alone to do anything. And lastly, number seven, here we go. We're going to finish with this. This is the last question. What will I risk following Jesus? Does that question ever occur to anybody? What will I risk following, to, following Jesus? Again, when you read the Gospels, you notice that Jesus didn't tell the twelve everything at once. <laughs> they weren't mature enough. They weren't equipped for it. Aren't you glad that the night before he doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen the next day? I mean, we already know something of what waits for us in the following day, right? I mean, I, I go to bed at night and I know who I'm going to see, I know who I'm going to meet, I know some of the issues we're going to deal with. There are some mornings I do not want to get out of bed. I don't want to have to face the day. I don't want to have to face those situations. I'm glad God doesn't show me the detail of all of that. Because then for sure I would not get out of bed. <laughs> he doesn't tell them the deeper things, the deeper teachings about, 
about becoming Christ-like, what it's going to require, what it's going to entail in their life. He doesn't teach them in the beginning the implications of what, of what a worldwide mission is going to be all about, what they're going to have to go through. He doesn't talk to them in the beginning about ultimate martyrdom. I suspect that if he told them all of that, man, they'd have bailed right in the beginning. It's too much. He told them only what their maturity level allowed for them to be able to receive. Jesus put no greater burden on them than they were prepared to bear. It took a long time to go from come follow me to when at the end of John's gospel he tells Peter the manner in which Peter will die. There's a long time between there. Peter had to grow up. Peter had to mature. It was only then when Jesus could tell him that someone else will dress you and someone else will lead you where you do not want to go is death. Better that words like these wait until a person has done some growing up. Would you agree? Sure. We don't tell our kids everything that's, that's, that's in store for them in life. They can't handle it. They won't understand it. They have no comprehension. A couple of years ago, my son came to me and he said, Dad, I said, what is it? He said, I, I've, I've made an observation. I said, what's that? It costs a lot to live. <laughs> I said, that's right. You know, he's, he was developing a profound appreciation for just what it costs to, to, to live. And so at that point, I could begin to instruct him in terms of, 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 of uh, the things that we've talked about. Budgeting, margin, uh, disciplined work ethic, and so forth. But until you come to the point where you get a signal that the person is ready to hear it, now you're able to tell them. Now you're able to share. Too many times we overwhelm people and we blow them away. They're not prepared. They're not equipped. But there was, there was an answer to the question for those who wanted to hear it. The question, how risky? The answer, for those who were ready, for those who wanted to hear it, you will follow me to death. There are people today, even as we're sitting here comfortably in this auditorium, and there are people today around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, who are in fact dying for their faith. Families ripped apart. Children and wives being sold into slavery. As we sit here today. You and I don't suffer death here today physically. We don't experience that in North America yet. There may come a day when we do have to face that. Are we prepared? Is that an eventuality that you've considered? If I can enlarge this idea of dying just into our own context, how about uh, being willing uh, to let go of a career? Maybe you invest a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of energy, but it comes in direct conflict with what God has called you as a disciple of Jesus. Are you ready to die in terms of losing that career? Or maybe there are people in your life, friends, that you've held on to dearly, who you're going to lose. 
Maybe there's a wrong relationship that needs to be lost, that you need to die to that relationship. Maybe some measure of, of security from something or someone that you have held on to that needs to experience some death. So we're not necessarily immune from those things. Jesus very surely tells us that we must be willing to follow him into death. Unless you're willing to follow him into death, Unless that's a, a, a considered and a settled issue for you in your life, you'll not be a true, real disciple of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. So if you're seeking life now, and you're going to determine it by your own criteria, you're really going to lose it. It's going to end up being nothing. He says, but if you're willing to lose your life for his sake, then you'll find it. Very simple. So, what about following Jesus? We know something about who he is. And now there's a call to follow. He says, come follow me. And there are some things that we need to consider, some things we need to take into account as we begin to think of ourselves as disciples. And I would encourage you, with all my heart, think through these things. I've written...